Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, editor of the Lancet Psychiatry, and today we're going to be talking about anxiety. Specifically, we're discussing a paper published by Dr. Oliver Robinson and colleagues in the journal. And we're lucky to be joined in the studio today by Oliver. Oliver, would you like to say a little about yourself? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me, Niall. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I'm a researcher currently based at University College London, uh, where I hold an MRC Career Development Award Fellowship. But before that, I was actually based at the National Institutes of Mental Health, or NIMH, uh, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. in the United States. And it was actually there at NIMH uh, that this work was completed um, in the section on the neurobiology of fear and anxiety, which is headed by uh, Dr. Christian Grion. So I come from an academic background, so I have a PhD rather than clinical training. But my current research goals are to sort of try to translate some of our academic understanding into more clinical relevance. Okay. So the title of your paper is The Dorsal Medial Prefrontal Amygdala Aversive Amplification Circuit in Unmedicated Generalized and Social Anxiety Disorders, an Observational Study. So we'll unpick precisely uh, what that means uh, later on. But first, let's start with this word anxiety. Now, I'm sure that some of our listeners, all of our listeners, in fact, will have experienced anxiety at some point in their lives. And many will have had it in the past week, maybe even today as they prepare for, for a, a Lancet Psychiatry podcast. <laughs> so how does this pathological anxiety, uh, as it might be termed, uh, differ from, say, the anxiety relating to an exam result or a driving test or any other experience in day-to-day -day life? Well, yes. Yeah, so, of course, we all do feel anxious from time to time. And in fact, it can actually be advantageous sometimes. So an example I often give is if you're walking home late at night in the dark, uh, you can often feel very anxious. And that can actually be useful. So it can help you, say, detect, I don't know, a mugger in the dark. Uh, it can sort of prime you to run away and, and, and get to safety. So in that sense, anxiety can, can be helpful. Um, but normal anxiety, so-called normal or adaptive anxiety, when you get home after being in the dark, uh, slowly it'll dissipate and it'll eventually go away. Pathological anxiety, it comes in many different forms, but the sort of general kind of idea is that it's basically always on. This anxious feeling is, is, is always there. Um, the sort of rule of thumb is uh, you've had more days uh, than not over a period of six months where you feel you know, anxious and you're constantly on edge and you have difficulty sleeping, you feel irritable and so forth. It's pretty common, uh, anxiety disorders. So uh, I think in around 2007, the estimate was around 15% of, of the UK suffered from some kind of anxiety-related disorder. Um, and there's some evidence that, that that number is increasing. Generally, they're more common in uh, women than men, but basically everyone can suffer from an anxiety disorder. We do have uh, uh, treatments that, that work, so some drugs and, and psychological treatments that, that work, but not everything works for everybody. And we don't have a particularly good handle on why uh, certain treatments work for, for who they work for. So that's sort of part of what the, the research I'm going to talk about today is, is about. Okay, so it's, it's common and it's very little understood and it does interfere with, with people's lives and well-being. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Okay, yeah. so let's focus on your study. Now, I think no one would deny that life events play a role and potentially a, a very big role in the development of mental health problems. And as the brain is an adaptable and learning organ, it's likely that those events, as well as perhaps underlying vulnerabilities and uh, problems that arise from that, will be reflected uh, in structural, in, in functional phenomena that, that you can actually look at if you have the right, the right scanning techniques. Is that correct? That's correct. So the hope is that in addition to sort of asking a patient how they feel and their background and their experiences and so forth, that we may be able to observe a slightly more objective changes uh, using scanning techniques that will 
help improve our ability to diagnose and treat these disorders. Okay, so that brings us nicely to your study. Now, the first thing to say is for our non-neuroanatomically inclined listeners, where precisely is the dorsal medial prefrontal amygdala? Amplification circuit. <laughs> okay, so so the amygdala uh, is a small almond-shaped uh, region of the brain. It's actually where the name amygdala comes from. It's uh, the, the, the root is almond, and it's approximately just above your ear, uh, somewhere towards the middle of your brain. The dorsal medial prefrontal cortex is perhaps five to ten centimeters higher, um, somewhere underneath the, the top of your skull. So the circuit that we're talking about is basically uh, the communication between these two regions. Okay, so what's the hypothesis of your work? So we're looking at a, a symptom of anxiety known as negative affective bias. So this uh, basically describes the propensity of people with an anxiety disorder to focus on negative or threatening information uh, at the expense of positive uh, information. So an example would be, um, say you're uh, on your way into work and you miss your train, uh, and then you get into work and you get some very good news, like a promotion or something like that. Um, if I asked you at the end of the day how your day was, you might tell me all about missing the train and not about the, the promotion. So this is, is very important in anxiety disorders. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of key symptom and, and the idea is it might up promote and sort of uphold the kind of anxious state. So we did, uh, so this sort of negative bias is not only seen in anxiety disorders, but also in the so-called normal or adaptive anxiety that, that the, in the example I gave earlier of when you're walking home in the dark, you can also see this sort of negative bias. So we did a number of uh, previous studies uh, looking at this negative bias in, in healthy individuals. So um, actually the way that we uh, induced anxiety uh, in these previous studies was using electrical shocks. So we threatened mm -hmm. people with electrical shocks and it tends to make you quite anxious. Yes, um, so. <laughs> exactly. But the idea is that uh, you can turn this off so you can say someone you're at risk of a shock and now you're safe from shock. So we can actually look at this sort of adaptive process in healthy individuals. So in these previous studies, uh, we showed that this particular circuit, the one that we've just discussed, the amygdala to dorsal medial prefrontal cortex circuit, was more active during negative affective bias in this sort of adaptive uh, anxious process. So the study that we're talking about today, we, we wanted to extend this into um, pathological anxiety. So the hypothesis is that this same circuit that is activated in so-called normal anxiety will perhaps be active at baseline. So even without threat of shock or some electrical shocks, will be active at baseline in, in people with an anxiety disorder. Okay, so to test this, you, you used a, a scanner, and the particular scanning technique you used was fMRI. Now, what, what is fMRI? What does it allow you to see? Yeah, so fMRI, which stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, um, it sort of allows us to, to get a sense of which regions of the brain are active whilst people are com uh, completing, say, a computerized task. So in this instance, a computerized task that will measure a negative bias. Um, one advantage of the technique is it's completely non-invasive, so it doesn't require you to take any sort of harmful radiation or um, you know, have surgery or anything like that. So the way that it works is basically a large magnet measures changes in blood flow that occur in the brain as a result of oxygen uptake. So when regions of the brain are more active, they use up more oxygen, uh, and that's what we're looking at. So we can get a sense of which regions are perhaps more active during, for example, a computerized task or across different uh, uh, individuals say someone with an anxiety disorder or not. Um, we can also do some slightly more complicated things to kind of get a sense of which regions are, are talking to each other in a circuit and that's actually um, what we're doing uh, in this particular study. Okay and you're looking at the uh, the circuit
circuit, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. With this technique, that means you can look at changes in blood flow, which we, we assume, of course, is correlated with brain activity. Exactly. And so tell me a bit more about how exactly you use this technique to look at this circuit in people with this, this diagnosis of, of anxiety disorder. Yes, so uh, we recruited a sample of 45 individuals in this study. So 22 of them had a current anxiety disorder and 23 of them were, were healthy controls. Um, none of them were taking any medication, so they're all medication-free. Um, we recruited them from Washington, D.C. Uh, metropolitan area, um, and they responded to advertisements that were on, say, public transport or in local newspapers and so forth. Um, and they came in for a full examination, a physical examination, then an examination by a clinician, uh, a sort of psychiatric examination. And so 15 of our anxious patients, of a total of 22, had a generalized anxiety disorder, which is sort of anxiety to kind of everything, not really specific, what, what causes your anxiety. Of that 15, nine also had a comorbid uh, social anxiety disorder, which is a bit more specific. It's, it's anxiety associated with uh, social situations, um, you know, speaking in front of people, doing a podcast, for example, <laughs> something like that. And then seven of the, uh, of the patients uh, had social anxiety alone. Um, and this basically just uh, represented um, the people that came into the clinic. That, that was the sort of natural uh, frequency of those, of those uh, diagnoses. But it's important to note that the, the findings that we're talking about today, it didn't seem to matter what specific sub-diagnosis you had. So just broadly speaking, if you had an anxiety disorder, um, this particular mechanism uh, was recruited. So anyway, so we had our, our, our healthy controls and our anxious patients, and they all came in for the same testing session where they uh, did an fMRI scan whilst they completed this um, computerized task to measure uh, negative bias. So this task was very, very, very simple. So they're shown pictures of faces, and those faces might be fearful faces or they might be happy faces. And all the uh, participants had to do was press a button that said, that is fearful, that is happy, that is fearful, that is happy. Pretty boring. Uh, they went through it for about seven minutes or so, and that, and that was basically it. Um, and importantly, this is the same task that we used in some of the previous studies that I mentioned earlier uh, where we looked at sort of normal anxiety. So in those uh, studies, we actually, as I said, used electrical shocks to make people anxious. And whilst they're completing this same task, uh, we showed that this, um, this circuit, this amygdala to dorsomedial prefrontal cortical circuit was recruited, uh, was activated during the processing of the fearful faces but not the happy faces. And the idea is that this is what's driving this negative bias, that this circuit is activated for fearful faces. So, oh, and in addition to that, we also um, took a trace anxiety questionnaire. So this basically just asked people um, to rate uh, sort of how often or, uh, you know, I'll say something like, uh, I feel tense. And they say, I feel like that all the time or some of the time or whatever. Uh, and so this questionnaire gives us a way of measuring um, sort of individual uh, anxiety a bit more precisely than you have an anxiety disorder or you don't. You can sort of get a, a scale of how anxious you feel. Um, so, yeah, that's basically what we did. Okay. And, and what did you find? So, as predicted, we showed that the same circuit that was um, activated by adaptive anxiety or normal anxiety in healthy controls was actually active um, at baseline um, in our patients. So what this suggests is that the same mechanism which we can sort of turn on with stress in healthy controls, this normal anxious mechanism, is always turned on uh, in, our, in, in, in patients with an anxiety disorder. Um, and also, 
um, it, it, it seemed to correlate with um, the self-reported anxiety that we got on this uh, anxiety questionnaire. So the more the patient said that they felt anxious, basically, the more this circuit was recruited, and it, it fell along a nice scale. So the more anxious you felt, the more this circuit was recruited. Okay, so what we have is a circuit which is sort of always switched on yes. in people who are anxious. And, and what does this mean in terms of the way researchers understand anxiety disorders? So, so firstly, it suggests that the same mechanism that is important in, in adaptive or normal anxiety is uh, important in the pathological anxious state. Um, so it's a sort of a hyperactivity within the same circuit. As I say, it's always turned on. Um, secondly, the fact that it, it, it seems to correlate with how anxious an individual feels, it, it seems to fall along more of a scale. So this isn't a sort of categorical, oh, you have an anxiety, you know, you're feeling anxious or you're not. It seems that the more anxious you feel, the more this particular circuit is recruited. And that kind of fits with some of the more contemporary approaches to psychiatric diagnoses, where they're you know, saying that perhaps it's, 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 it might be good to think about some of these disorders along more of a continuum or a scale. Um, and then finally, um, this circuit, I haven't mentioned this before, but this circuit is actually grounded in translational animal research, um, which, which allows us to say something a little bit more about the mechanism of this circuit. So we're not just observing that it's changed in the disorders. We can perhaps start to unpack a little bit what the circuit is doing. So we call it the, uh, the aversive amplification circuit. One hypothesis is that basically the amygdala is responding to negative information, threats, aversive things, or in this instance, fearful faces. But this core cortical region is actually uh, serving to amplify those responses. So the reason you get a negative bias is that the, this uh, cortical region is amplifying these aversive responses uh, in the amygdala. So we can start to begin to say not just that this is a symptom, but we can also start to say something about why it's a symptom and, and what it's doing and then hopefully be able to target it a little bit more precisely. Okay, so on that subject of, of targeting it, um, supposing I was someone who had a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, what does your research mean for me? So, well, the first thing to note is that this is one piece in a larger puzzle. So it's not going to have an immediate clinical impact. We need to you know, replicate these findings. We need to do a number of follow-up studies. However, one thing that we have found with this circuit is that it seems to be modulated by serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter, um, which is important in a number of psychiatric medications. So, for example, SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. These are the sort of standard first-line treatment for a number of anxiety disorders. So we've shown that actually serotonin, if you lower it in healthy individuals, broadly speaking, you mimic a kind of symptom of anxiety disorders. If you lower serotonin, you also get increased activity within this circuit. So that's the same sort of pattern that we see in patients versus healthy controls. So we can kind of make our healthy controls look a little bit like patients by lowering their serotonin. This in turn gives us clues as to what serotonergic medications like SSRIs are actually doing in the brain, because surprisingly, we, we don't really have a particularly good handle on, on what they're actually doing. Okay, so this, this leads us on to, to a point which which I'm, I'm sure some people are thinking right now, which is the one of the big criticisms of uh, the, what, what's called the biomedical uh, aspect or the biomedical model of psychiatry, is that this chemical imbalance theory of psychiatric disorders is an oversimplification to the point of not reflecting reality, a sort of modern version of, of the four humours, if you like. Uh, but this, uh, this isn't quite what you're saying here. 
Yes, so that's not quite what I'm saying okay, here, correct. Okay. I mean, obviously, any psychiatric disorder is going to be a complex, inter you know, it's, it's going to be caused by a myriad different factors. You know, there's complex genetic, social, psychological causes, and any single process, be it, or, or, or mechanism, be it, say, uh, serotonin, or e even indeed the, the circuit that we're talking about today, is obviously only going to be one of many causes. Uh, so, you know, it's not going to be part of the, the whole picture. And in fact, that kind of is important because, you know, you might have two people uh, who present in a clinic with an anxiety disorder who say that they feel the same, they both feel anxious, and to a clinician, the, these two people look exactly the same. But it may be actually that any one of these myriad causes is completely different in the two groups, in the two patients. So one of them, for example, their disorder may be associated with hyperactivity in the sort of circuit that I'm talking about today. And so perhaps this patient potentially would be you know, well-suited or would respond to, say, a, uh, an antidepressant medication like an SSRI. Whereas another uh, patient may have the same presentation, but it may be a completely different underlying mechanism. So if we can start to put our patients into different groups based on you know, what we think they might respond to, we might be able to improve our hit rate. So the majority of people who actually come in for treatment for a mood or an anxiety disorder, they fail to respond to their first treatment that they're offered, um, which uh, if we can do anything to improve that, if we can start to you know, make it so that people will respond to the first thing they're given, that, that will be enormously beneficial, save a lot of time and a lot of suffering. So it's actually about personalizing treatment options for people. Yes, that will be, that will be one goal. I mean, really, if you can make it so that the first thing that you try works, it would, it would help people out enormously. Okay. So to round off, where do you go from here? So as I say, this is just a start. Uh, we need to replicate this. We need to do a number of follow-up studies. So stuff that I'm working on at the moment, for example, we're looking at whether this same uh, circuit might also be important in depression, which is also associated with negative affective bias. So it may be that this particular mechanism cuts across our, our kind of standard diagnosis, diagnostic criteria. And in fact, as we know, uh, depression and anxiety disorders are, are very highly comorbid, so it's possible. We're also going to look directly at the effects of SSRI pharmacological treatment on this circuit so a previous study I talked about was looking at lowering serotonin we actually want to try and treat people with this so uh, is it possible to start to stratify patients into these uh, different groups of who will respond to treatments we're going to do a little bit looking at um, psychological intervention so does this uh, circuit is it modulated by we're going to begin with low intensity uh, computerized uh, psychological intervention but broadly speaking, uh, one goal is can we use this understanding to improve our ability to treat? So not only can we put people into groups based on whether they'll respond to our current treatments, but can we use it to screen for new treatments? So one of the big problems we have in psychiatry is that many of our, um, uh, our, our drugs fail to scale up through clinical trial. They look, they look promising in an animal model, but then they get quite uh, far down the clinical trial phase and then they fail. So here we have a mechanism that we can reliably activate in healthy individuals using, uh, as I previously said, threat of shock. But we also know, as we've discussed today, that it's linked to the clinical presentation. So can we use this understanding to screen for, for, for new medications? But ultimately, of course, the goal is to improve diagnosis and treatment. I mean, really, the only thing that matters is can we use this to improve the lot for patients with these disorders? Um, can we basically translate any of this into clinical relevance? That's really the kind of uh, the final endpoint goal. Thank you. That uh, extremely interesting piece of research is now online and will be in print in our September 2014 issue. So thanks again, Oliver, for joining us today and to you for listening. And I do hope that you will join us again for the next Lancet Psychiatry podcast.